welcome to Organized Crime and Punishment, the best spot in town to hang out and talk about history and crime, with your hosts, Steve and Mustache Chris. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-218-6010. I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-218-6010. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Welcome back to Organized Crime and Punishment. We are continuing our discussion of the incredible story of Murder Incorporated, the violence arm of the mafia. Isn't that just crazy mustache that the mafia had a special organization for enforcing violence? That fact will get us into all sorts of fascinating conversations. But let's start off with a quick recapitulation of what we've talked about so far. You can listen to any of these episodes that we've done so far on Murder Inc. by themselves. They stand alone, uh, all the in, as uh, all the information presented, but they paint a much uh, richer and clearer picture of this deadly organization, Murder Inc., when you put them all together. So um, with that mustache, Chris, can you just recap the elements so far that we've talked about that set us up to how Murder Inc. was formed? Yeah, so to uh, kind of reintroduce some of the major players, we have uh, Abe Rellis, uh Harry Strauss, Happy My Own, um, Frank Ambadano, uh, Lepi Bokalter, Albert Anastasia, Louis Compone, and all these guys together kind of loosely create what we know as uh, murdering. Uh, Lepi Bokalter and Albert Anastasia were the two heads of the organization there was two heads right and albert was kind of responsible for the uh the italian uh element of murdering and that uh bulk alter was responsible for the jewish element of murder wing uh murdering so that we have those those basic pieces and there's a whole lot of context that leads us up to how it's formed and uh, labor slugger wars so many other elements that come together the whole situation that was going on in these neighborhoods these ethnic enclaves but we've gotten to this point let's talk about the founding and now that we have all these pieces how is murder inc actually put together and why so after like the Castellamari War, really, and when the, the creation of the National Crime Syndicate, and we talked about this uh, on the episode one of Murder Inc., like Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky and the top, top cream of the top mafia came up with this idea of uh, creating like, an enforcement wing for this newly uh, created National Crime Syndicate. And, you know, it makes sense where... 
you know, it only takes kind of one person to uh, start squealing to the police or fly off the handle and all this hard work that uh, went into creating something like the National Crime Syndicate could all just come collapsing. So basically, you have to make people terrified of the fact that, you know, your life's going to be at risk if you even think about talking uh, about Lucky Luciano. They probably wouldn't be talking about him because he was so high up, but, you know, talking about Lucky Luciano to the cops or anything like that. Um, in a lot of ways, it's basically kind of how our police force works in some ways. It might get me in a little bit of trouble, but it's 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 the threat of violence that really stops a lot of people from committing crimes where... You know, the violence that could happen to them, but, the, you know, the um, the fact that they can get thrown in jail for many years or the cops show up and it basically it's a foundation of almost every society in a lot of ways where without that threat of violence, it's really hard to keep control of anything. I mean, that that really is. I mean, I don't think that that's a controversial opinion, that the police is the violence arm of the state and that the state has the monopoly of violence through the police. I mean, that's why if I have a dispute with my neighbor, I can't even if it was a, a completely legal dispute and we went through the courts and it said that my neighbor owes me ten thousand dollars because their tree fell onto my fence. I can't go and collect it from them personally. I can't take their property. The mafia needed something like that because otherwise it would be chaos. You think about different situations where clans, I mean, on Sicily even, clans fight each other and they have wars that go over the course of generations the National Crime Syndicate, if it was going to be a professional operation, needed needed that ability to impose its will on people who are uh, members. Exactly. And it, I mean, it's a natural I think it's a natural uh, uh, progression of just organized crime in general in the United States becoming more organized. You you mentioned like the tree falling, like I'd recently been listening to uh some history on the vikings and the viking society kind of ran it was like an honor society where oh you know your tree fell on my tree and it's like you're not going to pay for it i'm going to personally go and take care of you myself and it, it, you know for like this somewhat like less organized society i mean that makes sense i mean we we talked about earlier in the series this is how the mafia used to take care of problems they'd have these like crazy shootouts in the middle of the streets but at this point they start realizing you know as a state realizes like we can't just have like the neighbor shooting the other neighbor because you know he flipped his cow or something like that it just doesn't work like that like the neighbor has to be able to go to this third party which is the legal system or let's say for arguments like let's just say the police this is what my other neighbor did they have to investigate it see what happened and come to the conclusion like who's at fault here is or if anybody's at fault and a lot of ways this is kind of how murder inc was used where they get hired to f do the jobs but people within the national crime syndicate would sit for a very long time discussing you know what to do about so and so individual and we'll get into it uh, when we talk about dutch schultz when there was a very long meeting about what to do about him exactly so in, in a way it was it, it was professionalizing uh 
the mafia. I know it sounds crazy because we're talking about something called Murder Inc. And once we start getting into some of these murders, it doesn't seem very professional. But it it really was in a lot of ways, especially when you compare it to how the early mob ran. And you don't have to look very like far. Just listen to some of our earlier episodes. We talked about it on there. You needed this mechanism to keep everybody honest and try and quell as much violence as much as you can. And now this geographically speaking, we're really talking mostly about the New York City area. Where was Murder, Inc. based out of inside of New York City? We've talked so much about Brownsville and parts of Manhattan. And a lot of these characters come from this Brownsville neighborhood. Is this carried through? One of its nickname was was the Brownsville Boys. So that just tells you basically it was uh, all the major players were from Brownsville or pretty close to it. Uh, it also went by another nickname was called the Combination. I believe that was I think it was like kind of like a nickname. It was like a reference to like the combination of like the the Jewish mafia and the italian mafia coming together to work uh um to work together almost like a combination the group's like main base of operations believe it or not was a place called midnight rosie's uh candy store and this is a uh, rosie gold was a she was 60 years old uh it was a 60 year old lady running this candy store uh that was like harboring some of the most ruthless uh killers that the United States has ever seen. Um, and probably this, I would say that the most ruthless, uh, killing machine, the mob ever created. I mean, you could make an argument, maybe Roy DeMeo, but I don't think Roy DeMeo put up the type of numbers that murder machine ends up putting up, uh, when we do our wrap up of it. Now, uh, how were these, the combination or murder Inc, this group, how were they employed, so to speak, or contracted as murder Inc for the national crime syndicate? Oh, so yeah. One more crazy story, but like that candy store, uh, it's surprisingly you'll hear, you'll hear a lot about candy stores in the next couple episodes. They had bones would be lined up in the back and all the, the, you know, the, uh, members of murder Inc. They wouldn't literally be just sitting there by the phones, but apparently when these phones went off, like the guys wouldn't answer the call and they're like, oh yeah, there's a, there's a job coming up. And I get this image of them like, you know, like, oh, times are tough. And then like they hear the phone go off and they're all like chasing over each other to go get the, to go answer the call for the, for the next job. But it sounds like something of a, like a kind of a cheesy Tarantino movie. I mean, well, and that will, we'll start discussing that. You can see why they would want to literally fight each other for these contracts because of how much they got paid for them. Oh, yeah. Yes. So you were talking, you mentioned earlier, basically how like Murder Inc. worked. And it, it kind of gets back into what we were talking about earlier, but the, the mafia becoming more of a professional operation was each member of Murder Inc. was paid a retainer. So people like Louis Capone, who we had talked about on previous episodes, uh, previous episode, we would, would, um, you know, f- go out and find prospects, right? And if they were good, they would get hired to be part of murder rank they obviously would have to show that they were good or had previously shown that they were good and yeah they would be paid a retainer which is basically a salary um just to be there right so to answer any calls where if they needed somebody needed something done and they wanted you to do it 
you'd have to do the job, right? Um, and for each hit that these guys would get, they get paid around, depends on the hit, where it is, uh, how important it is, $1,000 to uh, uh, $5,000 per hit, which at the time that we're talking about, that's that's a lot of money. Uh, and even the families, uh, like even the hitman's uh, families were compensated too, so I assume... Maybe they didn't have to pay for groceries or, you know, things of that nature or certain medical bills. Uh, basically, this kind of ran like you would like a modern corporation would run in a lot of ways where, you know, like you get your base salary and then you get commission depending on like what you're selling or if you do something really good. It's a it's amazing to me, too, that you think about the mafia and you think that they're all killers, but in a lot of cases, they're not all killers. They might be toughs and they might have no problem beating somebody up, but it's a big step to be a killer. And then you see a lot of the people who were in the mafia who were killers, they weren't smart about it at all, or they weren't hardcore enough of killers to be hitmen so i you can see how you would have to put together a group of people who are just absolutely bloodless cold-blooded killers oh yeah for sure i mean we'll like later on we'll get into like when we do like the wrap-up episode why maybe in some ways this wasn't the greatest idea but i mean if i guess if i was lucky luciano or if i was meyer lansky i would be yeah, this is a brilliant idea. Why would not do this? I mean, and it did work for a very, very long time. But in this system of paying like the retainers and like uh, uh, helping the hitman's family, is it basically like kind of ensured uh, that this people involved in Murder Inc. were would stay loyal for one, but it also made sure that potentially like, these crazy killers that they were hiring because they knew they were crazy killers that's why they hired them in the first place wouldn't turn on them because a lot in a lot of ways their you know their salary depended on working for the people who actually ran murder rank the national crime syndicate that was probably one of the biggest things that the guys at the top were very worried about was these other bosses um hiring these crazy <laughs> like people like pittsburgh phil to go take out another their boss and remarkably that never actually happened it's crazy to think about it but it, it didn't happen and following up on that you don't maybe necessarily want to have that kind of person sitting in a family it's uh kind of like the what do they say that uh, if you have a hammer everything problem becomes a nail maybe getting yeah. these guys into their own silo where they won't be out on the street and they have to feel like they need to run scams and you have just absolutely psychopathic killers out there who are either going to be used against other gangs or they're just going to be unleashed and you're basically unleashing serial killers out onto the out onto the town when Luciano and Meyer Lansky and all these people they wanted to run an operation that was designed to just make money i think a lot of the i mean really a lot of the older mafia people making money was definitely important, but they also liked to break heads and they weren't as singularly focused uh, at making a money-making operation. 
Steve here. We are a member of the Parthenon Podcast Network featuring great podcasts like Mark Vinette's History of North America Podcast. Go over to ParthenonPodcast.com to learn more. And now a quick word from our sponsors. Yeah, you know, I guess uh, I guess you can like crack a joke about like, you know, American capitalism changed the mafia for better. I don't you know. No, but it's the truth, though, like in Sicily, a lot of the petty vendettas and stuff like that. We talked to well, the like people like Lucky Luciano would complain about the mustache Pete's that I mean, it still ran in Sicily like that in a lot of ways for a very, 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 very long time, much longer than, say, the uh american mafia i mean i guess adopting its uh view like its uh economic outlook on uh the world um definitely did change it i mean what's the economic outlook on the that the americans have about the rest of the world it really, at its core it is it is capitalistic and it's it's turning things into businesses the, that's what Luciano and Meyer Lansky and those guys did is that they turned organized, they turned crime into a business. I mean, we'll get into it in future series, but you look at a lot of these uh, mafia people that we will talk about. It's pretty indistinguishable between them and businessmen. Some of the people are obviously Street guys who liked to just sit around all day playing uh, cards and drinking coffee. But there was a lot of them who were basically running completely legit businesses with uh, with organized crime running underneath. But that leads us into we'll get into the actual business now of Murder, Inc. You've curated a few of the more infamous or really wild tales of hits done by murder inc now you're we're not going to get into the super graphic details on this podcast as we try to keep this as family friendly as you can keep a topic such as this but we are going to talk about some of the things that happened uh so this might be a time that you would want to turn it off in the, the minivan but let's start off with the murder of abe wagner yeah so abe wagner was a like a smallish kind of bootlegger and around the brownsville uh i'm sorry uh on the lower east side with his brother ali and this is from what i've read um there was a new upstart gang and i've heard conflicting information about this gang the maza gang some people say it was uh it was a real gang but then it wasn't a real gang and i couldn't really get a clear answer about this like i think i remember reading i think people at the time were confused that it was just like it was just the italian mafia it wasn't like this different type of gang i i don't know it's confusing if anybody has any information about that uh, they can point you know show me um because i was having difficulty finding out whether this was like a real like an actual gang or not a gang or just a confusion like a lot of this time period a lot of the stuff is a lot of people are kind of confused exactly what happened um but yeah to get back on track uh yeah they be from what i read they moved in and started moved in on his him and his uh brothers uh bootlegging operations and they attempted to kill Abe by uh, via drive-by, but Abe was uh, surprisingly um, able to survive this situation. From what I read, he 
rolled out of the passenger's passenger door and they shot up the truck with like hundreds of bullets shot up the car with like hundreds of bullets but yeah he was able to roll out and ran away you know something straight out of a hollywood movie you know and that's not the only time he'll he'll get away one more time um yeah abe used to like i don't know he used to like going around town telling everybody like you know what a tough guy he was but like as soon as uh um you know things got really serious he you know he wasn't like a real tough guy and uh one of abe's brothers went to uh actually went to this maza gang and offered a truce and they killed him and <laughs> uh basically sending abe the message like yeah there's gonna be no truce you're just gonna stop doing what you're doing or we're gonna get you next uh you know and abe obviously being a smart man fearing for his life uh obviously went into hiding uh and this is where kind of things get a little bit murky where i write conflicting things where maybe he became an informant or maybe he didn't um it would make sense if he kind of became an informant he'd go the one group of people that might be able to save his life the police and the legal system um but it doesn't really it's not really relevant in terms of murder inc though where the national crime syndicate is that the way they looked at it it's like if you even had the potential of being an informant that was in a lot of ways just good enough to take you out because it just wasn't worth the risk for them um because like i said it could take one informant to take down the whole system and you know, when Abe Rellis becomes an informant, uh, when we get into the trial aspect of murdering, uh, he almost did that. So, um, yeah, and uh, Abe ended up just uh, running out to uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, where he actually opened up a grocery store and took out a different name and started living like a semi-legitimate life, really uh maybe this was an honest attempt by him to be like you know what i I don't want anything to do with this crime stuff anymore i'm just gonna open up a grocery store and one of the quietest places in the world minnesota and you know just want to be left alone uh but uh, i guess the national crime syndicate uh got information where uh abe was and they hired two guys named joseph young and i'm uh, sorry uh george young and joseph schaefer to uh perf- go take out abe and uh that's what they did um i would think it was um one night uh abe and uh his partner i guess is who were helping him run the grocery store they they were leaving a pharmacy and they uh george and joseph saw him and they immediately started shooting and killing uh al gordon almost instantaneously and uh, abe was able to run away again and he got away for a little bit and then he got he ran into uh, the Green Dragon restaurant, and uh, uh, George and uh, Joseph got went in there, and they shot him up uh, many times, and then uh, you know gave him a few whacks on the head with the butt ends of their guns right in front of all the customers. <laughs> just not say. It just shows you that even back then, you just couldn't get away with it, get away from the mafia. Like once they. S- put their sights on you they were going to fulfill the contract now this next one you picked is probably one of the most famous murders that they did and that's the murder of george rudneck and that plays into a lot of the themes of the things that we've been talking about uh through this entire series on murder inc yeah george rudneck he was um 
like a petty criminal that was, you know, in and around all these guys, right? And uh, like during the 30s, uh, we're, when we get into the trial episode, we end up having to talk about Thomas Dewey. We'll probably end up doing a series on Thomas Dewey just because he was such an important uh, figure in the early, in not just early mob, just mob history in general in terms of the the punishment aspect of it. Um yeah, so it was, yeah, during this time period, like Thomas Dewey's like crusade against organized crime um, really started wrapping, uh, ra- ratcheting up. And his main target, uh, right at the, well, one of his main targets was Lepke Bokalter, because uh, Lepke was probably one of the, it, the most powerful racketeer in the United States at that time period. So Lepke started getting like super paranoid about people becoming informant or ratting on him or, you know, squealing, you know, all that type of stuff. And Rudnick had the reputation of maybe being a stool pigeon. He also was like a opium addict. So that also that, which was well known, which, you know, made people very nervous, even, uh, even the lighter mob, right? The one of the reasons it's kind of a lie, but one of the reasons they had like kind of a harsh stance on drugs was, you know, you can't really trust a junkie. You know, you can't really. It doesn't matter whether it's the, you know, if they're in organized crime or not, right? Like you can't trust a drug addict because they're a drug addict. Drugs are first. You know, like, you know what I mean? That's yeah. That's basically it, right? Um, and um, Lepke had ordered George Rudnick to leave new york because he was worried that he was talking so in some ways lepke kind of gave him an opportunity he's like but you know what like i really don't want to i don't want to do this so just leave new york right just get out of here go wherever you want i don't care where you go um just can't be here right now uh and obviously george didn't listen to uh you know well you'll find out in a little bit Uh, it was probably not a good idea and in 1937, uh, Frank Abadano picked up Rudnick with a stolen car. This was one of Murderick's uh, techniques is they would steal a car and they would use this for the murder and then they ditch the car. Uh, so it'd be harder to trace back to uh, anybody because it was a stolen vehicle, right? Makes sense. I'm sure it's probably a technique that's still used nowadays. Um yeah, and they picked up, uh, he picked up Rudnick, uh, Rudnick probably not realizing what was in, uh, what was going to happen in the next couple of minutes. They dropped him off at the garage, I guess, where they were all going to hang out and, you know, happy my own, uh, Harry Strauss and Abe, uh, Rellis were waiting for him. And yeah, George Rudnick, yeah, ended up getting stabbed 63 times with, um, with an ice pick. You can actually see if you're not squeamish, you can actually see, pictures of the the crime scene as crazy as that sounds there there's quite a few of them actually um yeah and they would end up uh dumping george's body in the car on the streets and the cops uh would find him later you know with one of the most grisly crime scenes uh probably they've ever seen and then i always that kind of just blew my mind that they would just leave the body and just out in the middle of the street i mean I guess at that point, they just thought they were untouchable. They'd gotten away with so many murders beforehand and nothing had happened. You know, why is anyone going to care about this stupid uh, junkie? And we really get to see how vicious and violent and brutal they were. And we're going to see that in the next really high profile murder, that of Puggy Feinstein. 
we talked about one of the Shapiro brothers getting buried alive, which was, I mean, that just makes my skin crawl just even thinking about it. But I guess you could argue this is probably the most ruthless murder that Murder Inc. ever did. Puggy used to do business with Lepke in the gambling and labor racketeering. Uh, so, you know, him and Lepke were, you know, business partners, probably kind of friends in some ways. Uh, but uh, Puggy would end up making a like a pretty big mistake. He was by moving in territory that wasn't his and, you know, he was getting in Lepke's way. Um this murder would actually occur in, you know, Abrellis's own house. Uh, I believe his, I believe his grandmother was living at the house at the time. So she was like upstairs sleeping while this was all going on. Um, in the year 1939, Abe Rellis, Harry Strauss, and uh, uh, Martin Goldstein would ambush Puggy, you know, once he was invited into the house. Uh, and you know, Harry Strauss, uh, his specialty was using an ice pick. And apparently while he was uh, doing the job, Puggy uh, had the audacity to uh, take a few bites out of his finger. And uh, it's for as mean and as ruthless as a man like uh, Harry Strauss was and didn't mind killing people and all the messiness that was involved in that. Apparently he was a hypochondriac because he apparently freaked out when Puggy his finger he thought he was going to get lockjaw and <laughs> he just could not believe that like somebody would bite his finger um i mean it sounds like something kind of like out of a comedy he loses it uh he freaks out that you know he we'll get into it in a little bit like during the trial and stuff like that yeah yeah he was like worried that he was going to get lockjaw and then this is all based off what abe Rollis said i mean abe Rollis was there i don't know no reason not to believe him right like there's no reason to really lie about a detail like that uh it seems inconsequential really to the trial so um yeah and basically what they ended up doing with puggy because they were so upset with him you know that he just i don't know he just didn't take it they tied him up in such a way that um i don't know how to describe it via podcast like it's even hard to but they basically like tied him up in such a way that his feet were like kind of attached to his like the rope were tied was tied around his feet and then it was tied around his neck and basically what what ended up happening is if his feet moved a little bit at all the the noose around his neck would slowly tighten um and it would slowly uh kill him and apparently they all these guys just sat around and enjoyed watching him do this you know, like this is uh, people say, uh, you know, which guys are like they're mob killers, like serial killers. I mean, this is straight up. That's that's serial killer stuff. Steve here again with a quick word from our sponsors. Yeah, that's I, I, I 100% agree that you really see the the step here. They are not people who are just murdering for work. This is pure enjoyment for them, and the money is probably a side benefit that they really are serial killers. Now, here's a really interesting one that you picked, the murder of Joe Rosen. Joe Rosen was a legitimate uh, businessman his whole life. He didn't have any run-ins with the laws. I, I, I picked this one for a very particular reason. I think by the end of it, you'll you'll understand. Like He had no run-ins with the law. He was born in Brownsville, too, and unlike... 
many of the characters we've been talking about, he actually decided, you know what, I'm actually just going to work. So he worked and in the trucking industry and through hard work and sacrifice, he was able to save up enough money on his own to start his own little trucking business to cater to non-union tailor companies in Pennsylvania. Um, but Lepke didn't didn't like having non-union business in his neighborhood because he, you know, he ran the unions, right? Uh, it wasn't like we've talked about, like, it was the garment union that I think we were particularly focused on in the episode we talked about like, the labor slugger wars. But Lepke was involved in all different types of, like, unions, you know, trucking, uh, even like, I think it was like flowers, too, and like flower arrangement shops. And he was involved in all of it. Um, lots of different things. Um, but yeah, to get back to it, uh, and at this, the reason why he didn't want, uh, Joe Rosen doing like catering to like non union companies in Pennsylvania was because he ran the al- amalgamated clo- uh, clothing workers union. Uh, and it was like kind of cutting into his business, right? Uh, you know, you're paying the, you know, not having to pay for like union dues and stuff like that. Maybe the costs were a little bit lower and, you know, for the products and, you know, like he just didn't want it, didn't want any competition. Like, this is my territory. You're not allowed to do this. This poor guy, this poor little guy that's just running like this small little trucking company. It's kind of irrelevant to what Lucky's doing. The amount of money that Lucky's bringing in, right? Just a, just a power hungry control freak. Um, yeah. And. Joe Rosen, he like even sits down and talks to Lepke. It's like, well, if I lose this Pennsylvania contract, I might as well just shut down everything. Um, and Lepke apparently sets him up with a job in the Garfield Express Trucking Company. Um, apparently, Lewis, uh, that he owned like 50% of. Uh, eight months later, the owner, the other half of the owner of the truck company, uh, fires Rosen. And, you know, Rosen's out of work for 18 months. And it really just kind of show you at the core of it what the mob is really all about. It's intimidation. It's this is the hidden cost of the mob. This is the part that people don't see. Like they think like the mob guys are just, you know, they're just taking out other mobsters or it's just affecting other mobsters. That's just not reality. It's affecting you know the everyday working joe too and like joe rosen kind of perfectly represents this i don't know what do you think joe rosen i mean he's the american dream really when you think about it but think about it yourself you're uh, just a regular guy a regular joe trying to make your way and then you get for, uh, forced into this situation where you have to deal with these you know, brutal, violent thugs. What do you do? Do you play ball with them? Do you uh, try to work around it? Do you go through the system, through the police? I mean, you're basically, uh, Joe's put in a completely impossible situation. Yeah, you know, yeah, for sure, right? What is Joe supposed to do in this situation? What is he going to... I mean, maybe he could have beat up Lepke in a fight. Like, you know what I mean? But yeah, like, maybe Joe what does that guy do? You know what I mean? <laughs> he just ended up getting killed, right? Um, uh, and like Joe was able to, uh, he was able to secure a small loan. He was able to open up an, you know, here's a candy shop coming up again. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, opening up a small candy shop. But apparently he was very vocal around town that he was, uh, screwed over by Lepke and his friends and, you know, Thomas Dewey apparently uh, starts hearing 
or at least Lepke thinks that Tom is due is hearing Joe Rosen talk about how he got screwed over. Um, because at this time, Thomas Dew is investigating the amalgamated uh, clothing uh, clothing workers union and various other rackets that Lepke is involved in. You know, in a lot of ways, Lepke was justified in being, you know, paranoid about people riding on him. He, look, here's an example of just one guy, Joe Rosen, that he screwed over completely and that just was unnecessary. Of course, he's going to have a lot of enemies. Lepke actually tries to buy Joe Rosen off. He sends one of his co-workers, uh, co-mobsters, whatever you want to call them, to his candy shop and basically says, here's 200 bucks, just get out of town until things cool off. Apparently, Joe Rosen's like, well, okay, whatever, I'll take the 200 bucks. And he does leave for a bit, uh, but only a bit. He ends up just coming back. And apparently, when um, Lepke found out that Joe Rosen came back, he completely uh, blew a gasket. You know, it's like, oh, I gave him 200 bucks to you know, leave town, you know, completely forgetting about the fact that you'd completely ruined this man's life and all the hard work that he had done. And now you're paranoid that he's going to, you know, he's going to rat on you uh, to uh, Thomas Dewey. I just these these guys are in a lot of ways like children. <laughs> like he could have paid them really well. And like children and cheap too, right? Like two hundred bucks, really? Like you're paying guys like five thousand dollars to do a hit. If he had given Joe Rosen, say, I don't know, ten grand, probably a good chance maybe Joe Rosen just leaves. I mean, I wouldn't say it's completely fair financial compensation considering all the other stuff that he had put him through. But two hundred dollars is like a slap in the face, really. It's just so disrespectful. Um, yeah, but to get back to it, uh. Lepke ends up ordering the hits for uh, ordering the hit on Joe Rosen. And on September 13th, 1936, a band of killers led by Harry Strauss broke into the candy shop uh, waiting for Joe Rosen to uh, open up. And once uh, Rosen did open up, he was ambushed, uh, shooting him 17 times with Harry adding another four when it was very clearly dead. Um, Caught. It's just just brutal like this guy didn't do this guy didn't do anything to deserve this you know and when lepke ends up going to the chair anybody that even remotely thinks like there's anything to look up to these guys or even remotely feels i don't know like oh did he deserve the lepke deserved the electric chair i mean you know people can argue and this is literally why the electric chair was invented it was for people like lepke bulk alter out of the alma maybe hundreds thousands of murders that these guys did murder inc under the orders of the national crime syndicate and you really touch upon this that it's not just inside of the mafia they're killing people outside of the mafia as well and outside of crime but why do you think that these five murders were so representative murder inc was responsible for hundreds of murders and you may be asking like you pointed out asking yourself like why i picked uh these four to talk about and I, I thought to myself, like, I don't know, these out of uh, out of all the murders, I felt like these four covered pretty much everything that murdering did. You know, with Abe, we saw they hunted for a guy like all around the United States, which is something that murdering did. They quite literally like killed people in, you know, Miami, Cleveland. Um, I remember reading and I can't confirm this. I believe the first official mob hit that was done in the West done on the West Coast. I believe it was L.A. was by Murder, Inc., but I had a little bit of difficulty uh, 
finding the exact information on that. But once I do, we'll probably end up discussing it. Uh, just to give you an example, like it literally was across the entire United States and Abe kind of perfectly represents that, you know, with Rugnick, Rugnick and, uh, Puggy, we, uh, we see like a lot of, like, like you pointed out, we see that, uh, they were taking out fellow criminals with, uh, Puggy being, uh, competition and Rugnick, a junkie that maybe was going to talk. And with Rosen, it perfectly represents, uh, what the mob actually is at its core. Like the mob is, it's intimidation. It's cutting down anyone and everyone it stands in their way. You know, they are a society unto themselves with, little regard to anyone outside of that society the mob you know will kill a little guy like rosen and all the people you know and all the people that idolize them they'll rob and kill from you too if it served their purposes really at the end of the day and these four murders that uh i think really just captures the full spectrum of everything that uh murder inc was all about it, um, I just don't think you can say enough of how brutal they are. And they really set the, they set the standard, I guess, for mafia hitmen. And I don't think even in some of the people that we'll talk about later on in this series and another series that they really, anybody could hold a candle to the brutality, the violence and the organization of Murder Inc. No, not really. I mean, uh... Off the research that I've done so far, I mean, down this is like way, way down the road. But you know, Roy, the Roy DeMail gang is pretty much the only one that I think comes close to what Murder Inc was doing. And even the Roy DeMail gang, they don't, they didn't really have, they didn't have a Pittsburgh fill, right? We're not quite done with Murder Inc. Not even close. The collapse of Murder Inc. is just as fascinating and, and unbelievable as its founding. We'll also take some time to look at some of the, the specific characters and members of Murder Inc. We'll, we'll see how they all fit together and how each one of these, I mean, what we can call them psychopaths really brought something different to this organization and they all had their eventual fall but uh we will see you next time but don't forget to tell your friends about organized crime and punishment so that your friends can become friends of ours yeah forget about it you've been listening to organized crime and punishment a history and crime podcast to learn more about what you heard today, find links to social media, and how to support the show, go to our website, a to page.com. Become a friend of ours by sending us an email to crime at a to page.com. All of this and more can be found in the show notes. We'll see you next time on Organized Crime and Punishment. Forget about it. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. 
Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ.